What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, still in quarantine with my co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, we had a nice weekend though. Did you get outside at all? I did, yes. Get that sun, get that vitamin D, get that tan going while staying six feet away, obviously. Yeah, no, it was, it was good to finally get outside a little bit. Yeah, I got a little bit of color, and anyone that's watching on YouTube can see I have the mask tan, you know? <laughs> I was wearing my mask out and about this weekend, being responsible with my my socializing outside, and uh, I'm going to probably have a weird mark for the summer, but that's okay, because it's important to be safe. Although, I, didn't see, I saw a lot of people without masks out and about, and I'm a little bit worried that we might see a spike in cases, which would lead to further stay at home orders and if that happens dave it's gonna be bad news for everybody but especially movie theaters and that brings us to amc who is uh not having a great week would you say uh with universal talking about the success of trolls world tour 2 um the rise of the trolls i actually don't know if that's the name probably not yeah, trolls world trolls. tour the second yeah. trolls movie um and it made over a hundred million dollars just being a pay uh, video on demand um option and that's pretty pretty crazy um you you have this big children's movie it did really well it would have you know, been a bomb in third just for its uh, on demand um numbers so the uh the universal head said yeah when movie theaters do come back we will be releasing it in theaters but also for paper pay on demand as well at home so uh amc did not like that very much and said well Universal, we're not going to allow you to uh, show your movies in our theaters anymore. And Regal's uh, parent company soon followed up in, in unison with AMC. So right now, it's Universal versus the movie theaters. Dave, where are you falling in this battle? Uh, well, I, 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 do, I do appreciate AMC uh, throwing up the bird real fast with this, to be honest, because we all know that both parties need each other to succeed. And I think a lot of people, especially people that are just rooting for more stuff to be VOD are, I think are kind of getting ahead of themselves with their declarations about, um, about movie theaters, because let's not forget universal was very quick to push no time to die to November and fast nine to 2021. Uh, they could put those movies that are done out right now on VOD if it was actually a realistic option for the profit margins they are seeking. Trolls World Trail making $100 million, that's in about three weeks. That's with a captive audience at an inflated rental price and no competition. $100 million, even when you get like an 80-20 take home take as opposed to like the 50-50 theaters, but even with that increased you know, return, uh, that ain't going to cut it for Fast 9 or No Time to Die, even if we double that or triple that, that still ain't going to cut it. They need each other. They need the theaters. Obviously, AMC and Regal can't cut out some of the biggest franchises they have because it's the blockbusters that really make all the big money for theaters, right? So they need each other. And with nothing, I think, of note for Universal coming out until like September when the Candyman reboot is uh, currently dated, there's plenty of time to renegotiate with a window in, right? So... I think it'll be resolved in some case, although clearly the windowing uh, uh, probably be changed in some way. But it's just kind of interesting to see it, I think, blow up so publicly and uh, so quickly. But I guess it also isn't that uh, unexpected, you know. Uh, it's yeah. kind of, COVID's kind of accelerating a lot of, uh, you know, changes. So kind of interesting. Yeah, the, these changes were things that people have been talking about, had been kind of on the horizon, you know, even from the start of our podcast four years ago, we've kind of been keeping our eye on the shift to paying to watch movies that are in theaters at home. And it's inevitable that at some point this will probably be an option or at least be a quicker option than it is currently. Um, but yeah, as you said, the COVID-19 situation has sped a lot of this up. However, in the long run, I agree with you. I think this is a lot of posturing and um, you know, it, it's going to end up kind of, they're going to work something out, but uh it is interesting to think uh, Netflix has recently started to build a theater, I believe. Uh, and in New York city, they're dealing with like very upscale and like modern yeah. theaters. They bought some famous theaters. I forget the names. Uh, <laughs> and the Egyptian is one of them. One in LA, one in New York. Yeah. 
Well, one thing I was thinking about is if they would maybe do something along the lines of if, if they do expand their theaters down the road, make deals with these companies so that they could get their, their movies quicker to streaming, but have like exclusive releases. Now the, the theaters obviously are the, uh, the companies like universal that wouldn't really make sense for before something like an A24 that might be enticing not only to get more eyeballs on it, but potentially make more of an event around these sort of things. I know that you talked last year about going to see um, movies escaping me, but you saw a director introduce his movie, the lobster or not the lobster. Uh, you like me, don't you lobster? Uh, <laughs> the lighthouse. Yeah. The Robert lighthouse. So close. Um, and that, that sort of thing feels very intriguing of, of like some sort of partnership. If, if uh, these smaller production companies want to team up i don't i don't know the math on it and again i'm not an executive but just something i was thinking about if there's ever an option like that but for the, the large scale ones I, I don't think they could ever be that exclusive to make their margins back no and, and that's the thing if for some reason this was to go in effect moving forward big scale blockbusters would just need to cost less money mm-hmm. be, for them to be realistic because though they only cost so much you know 200 million and up because they can, they can get pretty much guarantee they're going to make the profit back, right? Um, so uh, there's two sides, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think anything's going to be too too rapid. We have a long time for this to simmer down. For sure, um, Trolls World Tour upending the market, um, but we're we're going to move on to some music today. So. Uh, before we do, I just I forgot to say this at the top. Just hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. We appreciate you, and uh, we we want you to follow along with us as we talk about car seat headrest. Dave, being po- potentially one of the biggest car seat headrest fans I know, big saw them will- live, brother. Have you done that? <laughs> uh, actually, I have not. You, you saw my gov ball what two years ago, three years ago? Yeah, I just like killed some time when they were on. <laughs> Well, what was their set like? I'm very interested to hear. Yeah, it wasn't a huge crowd, but they were just kind of jamming out. Will Toledo just chilling up there, strumming his guitar, belting out his songs, you know? And it seemed yeah. to be that the people that were watching were having a good time. So that's good, I guess. <laughs> it, it was actually really interesting. So as I was listening to this most recent album, Making a Door Less Open, in the first original uh, album that, that they've dropped and since Teens of Denial in 2016 I almost felt as if the shift that they had within this album in, in their musical style was almost intentionally to make songs that fit better for a festival type setting or just a concert type setting in general you know Will, Will Toledo <clears throat> famously known for creating all these albums I think it's like 12 self-released albums prior to teens of denial which you released on matador um and having this very unique songwriting style he's very like uh almost like tongue-in-cheek with with some of it like the way he delivers his lines and kind of just throws them in there on top of other lyrics um and also kind of making these un uh not classically structured songs and uh this album making a door less open felt a lot more like a traditional rock indie album and i think that was to varying effect um overall i think i really liked it but i was wondering i know that you weren't super thrilled to go into this album how did you feel leaving it yes with my uh admittedly low expectations going in i was uh i'd I'd say i'd say surprised for sure because as you said it it this album is definitely intentionally more inviting and conventional which to me makes it more accessible and appealing. Now for like someone who holds up the first big album as like an indie, you know, indie masterpiece of last decade, people in those camp probably aren't as happy with this change. But for me, as someone who really wasn't a fan going in, uh, I did find some songs that stood out to me. So I guess it depends what kind of fan you are. Yeah. I think expectation plays a big part into this and, you know, um, Twin Fantasy was the album that he re-released in 2018. Um, received a lot of a lot of scrutiny publicly. Not necessarily scrutiny, but I guess misinterpretation might be the way to put it. Um, a, a lot of uh, 
music publications took the meaning of the album and tried to kind of dig deeper and uh, develop some narrative around it. I think it was potentially, I think it might have been Up Rocks, like wrote about how they think the album is about a underage person having a relationship with their, their teacher. Um, and it was like a gay relationship and like assuming that this is a uh, Will Toledo's experience with it and he's never confirmed that, but hmm. basically that caused him to like cut off from the public and kind of in that time since he released that him and one of the other members of the band, I think his name is Andy Katz started this band called one, one trait danger or something like that. It was just this concept uh, EDM uh, electronic type band where within two albums they did the the beginning of the career and the end of the career for this this band and kind of follows this narrative and it's all edm electronic Mm. and i think you can really hear a lot of those elements break through onto this album which i think added a lot to most songs i think for some of them it kind of left them feeling a bit just like okay why was that on here i think there's about nine of the 11 songs i think deserve to be on this album and two that just feel like complete filler um, but tell me about tell me about the songs that you liked. I'm very interested to hear what you felt was more accessible and and struck struck you more. First track, Weightlifters. Yeah, it's a pretty easy highlight. Um, mm-hmm. That's just kind of a jam and rock song, mm-hmm. and I didn't really associate that with their last album, and and certainly the Bandcamp stuff before that that I dabbled into. Yeah. Um, and then after that, uh, I'd say Hollywood stands out. I think that's a song that's getting a quite a polarizing reception because it's certainly really simple. And I think in a certain sense, people are, are describing it. It's like, hmm, is Will mocking the people that think they're better than Hollywood? And like, I feel like Will Toledo is still a really enigmatic guy and his, his, yeah. his message is uh, a little opaque at times. It's kind of funny. He's been doing press and stuff and he's been wearing this gas mask Mm-hmm. And is he? It, I think he was. Tr- he was like hoping that would uh, land better when he probably thought of that a few months ago. And now that everyone's covering their face in some regard, it doesn't uh, stand out nearly as much. So that's kind of an unintended consequence of uh, COVID nineteen. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, no, I th- I th- I think it uh, flowed pretty well. So I was I was surprised how uh, how accessible I found it overall. Yeah, Hollywood and weightlifters are, are clear standouts. And it's kind of funny that Will Toledo, like you said, is such an enigmatic figure and that he can write this song that's so simple and most bands it would just be taken forward as like, okay, it's just a dumb rock song. But because Will Toledo is such a lyrical and linguistic guy, now it's like, oh, is this a commentary on the simplicity of most rock songs? It's like it gains this whole other meaning when it catches the interwebs attention. Uh, a couple of the songs I wanted to just shout out that I really liked. Um, I thought the song Martin was really cool in the construction of it, the way he like kind of layered at the end, like the drums, the acoustic guitar, and these other like electronic flourishes on there and like some backing vocals over it too. Um, the second deadlines, deadlines thoughtful in parentheses, I thought really reminded me of Ratatat a lot. And I wouldn't ah. be surprised if they were uh, kind of infusing some of that into um, one trait danger as well and then the one of the last songs life worth living i felt was a really really solid track and infused that like edm feel really well in there so overall i was i was really pleased with the album i think uh i can understand some of the scrutiny and some of the the criticism it's receiving but if you do take it at face value as just a good you know just a rocket and, and indie album i think you can leave pretty pleased i wasn't as pleased though dave having to listen to this new drop from drake i mean we've talked a lot about drake over the years he's dropped an album almost every year or a project almost every year that we've been doing this podcast so we've had a lot of time to talk about him in dark lane demo tapes i guess this isn't an album a mixtape who the f knows um my favorite part about it, it wasn't 25 songs like Scorpion or I, I think uh, I think his other album, More Life, was all, was right around there. So yep. I didn't have to sit with this for too long, but I, I left with a lot of the same feeling as those albums where it's like some of the highs were pretty high, but a lot of times I just found myself feeling like this is very mid-level type shit. And 
that's kind of where I, I, I sit with Drake now is there's a lot of filler to get to like the really good stuff. But when the stuff is really good, it's really, really good. Um, how are you feeling uh, with the surprise drop? So you're saying you weren't booted up, turned up, and piped up? Left foot slide, right foot up, <laughs> right foot slide, left foot up, dog. Yeah, I think the best part about Dark Lane demo tapes is that Drake made it pretty clear from the jump that this was just a data dump. This was a uh, collection of a lot of these songs were already out slash leaked in some form. And on top of the announcement of this, he said that this his proper studio album's coming this summer. So basically, I'm treating this uh, like with an asterisk, depending on how the album goes. He's talking about making a concise focused album for this new one very much unlike scorpion and and that that that, that that'll go a long way because kind of as you said drake kind of is just kind of competing with himself right now and i think i hope drake will understand the value of not needing to set new streaming milestones and all these kind of meaningless things that he doesn't really need to work hard to achieve. He just needs to set out and do them by releasing big projects and being, you know, Drake. Um, and hopefully hoping he can get back to something that's just a little more artistic um, with, with, the, with the full length coming. That's what I'm hoping for. That's, that's kind of what I'm qualifying a lot of this with because he made it clear that it's just these are the throwaways. And I was very happy that Tusi Slide in particular was not the lead single for that album coming this summer because Tusi Slide is a rough song. Um, not a terrible song, but a song that is just kind of gross because it's like, oh, Drake decided to to, to make, make a, a tic- TikTok song. Like, it's coming full circle in a bad way because back in 2018, in my feelings, almost kind of spawned the modern dance challenge. But Drake didn't intentionally do that. That was just a byproduct from mm-hmm. Shiggy going viral making the fucking challenge, right? Um, so it's it's, it's just kind of weird what to see slide. It's like. Like, I feel like the verses on that song are decent, but God, the, the hook parts is, 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 is terrible. Um, Either way you do it, you know we about to slide. Uh, okay. No, thank you. <laughs> I will stand here. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, that, that's a, it's a good way to look at this. And God, I hope you're right. I hope that this is like just the dump and this is going to end up being on the same level quality as the album. But the thing is like, man, Looking here, Scorpion was literally 25 songs, more life, uh, clocks in at 22, and he's dropping just 14 random songs here. Like, how much, how many songs this guy got? He, he's just constantly recording. Like, what's happening? Yeah. How does he have this many songs to just throw away? Well, and, and that's, I feel like that's kind of the lesson too is Drake seems to put out anything he's basically finished at this point. I mean, last year was the first year he didn't release a proper full length in many years. Um, maybe 2014. Nothing was the same time a while ago. Yet he put So Far Gone out on streaming service, got that all cleared. And then he released Care Package, which was a collection of all the big Lucy's he had put out um, in the past decade, which were not streaming services, you know. And I liked a lot of those songs, but you know, you kind of have to view that again. It's just a data dump that's now accessible for streaming. So now Drake can get paid from those songs. That's all that was. Right. Um, it's also kind of frustrating that uh, we made it. His song with Soldier Boy was not included. Wish he could have cleared that one. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So this isn't anything new, I guess, for Drake's standards. But you know, I was thinking, and a lot of people have been talking about this. The the quarantine environment was kind of ripe for somebody with a big profile to just take advantage of the opportunity with everyone around and especially with artists like with all kinds of stature dixie chicks haim lady gaga a lot of people started delaying their plans sam smith um it was we kind of had this room once everyone who had already kind of done their rollouts was, were done like the weekend dua so drake just kind of putting out just what he had ready to take advantage makes sense for drake the businessman but when we're when we're being music critics uh, this doesn't really help the case, you know? But like I said, I, I'm just happy that right. it doesn't seem like Drake's putting too much onus on this. So whatever. Anyway, um, I think in terms of songs that were already out, I, I really like When to Say When. I think that's a pretty solid, um, like the boastful, like going through the bars song. Drake's done that before, but I think that one's pretty good. Um, you have War, which was already out, and then we get uh, Demons with 504 and Sosa Geek. 
uh, those are the two. That's that's I, the one. Those are the dr- the drill songs from Drake, mm-hmm. and that, that's you know Drake being his chameleon self. That's I, I think he's got a mixed reception in terms of if we, people like him um, doing the drill aesthetic. I, I think I like it more on Demons. Um, yeah. More than anything, I just appreciate the look he's giving Fivio and Sosugi to not really famous at this point uh, New York artists. That's cool. Um, you also had Pain 1993, which was this much hyped leak song with Playboy Cardi, hyped mainly by the Cardi stands. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cash Cardi is truly just in another world at this point in terms of his, what he does to his vocals in post. Um, I thought the song was okay. I actually thought Drake was better than Cardi on this. So in terms of the hype, I thought it was underwhelming. What did you think of that one? Um, It stood out because of the vocals, but, you know, there was maybe three songs that really caught my attention. I already mentioned one, When to Say When. Um, I really liked Demons. That's probably my favorite song off the album. Uh, and then From Florida with Love, I, I, I thought it was pretty good. That's my favorite um, one. But Pain 1993, like, I, I noticed it and I was like, ah, Cardi's on this. And then I just kind of tuned back out and blacked right. my head. Like 90% of Drake's songs do, but the 10 that don't are always <laughs> in my head. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, D4L, the song with uh, Thugger and Future, yeah, that's solid. That's a solid. You know, it's cool seeing Drake do do tr- real trap once in a while. But that reminded me a lot of Portland off More Life with Quavo and Travis, a song that's like a banger in the moment, but it's not going to last at all. So that that kind of felt familiar in that regard. Um, I thought landed and losses were solid, but not super memorable either. And that's really it. So. From, I, I really do like From Florida Will Love. I've run that back a lot. I appreciate the static major shout out. Um, you know, the, the, the collaboration with one of Cardi's big producers. Oh, that's a cool link. Um, that song actually, I'm curious how old that song might be or some of those verses because he's shouting out um, YMB, Young Money Billionaires. He, I mean, he hasn't been on Young Money in years. And even though he's still cool with everyone, like he hasn't made a Young Money name drop in some time so i'm wondering if that song's a little old either way yeah it's uh it's really just it's just more drake yeah uh, you know two thoughts um on demons i i wasn't sure which one it was but uh, someone near the beginning sounded a lot like tyler i, I think tyler the creator and i was like oh shit it's not mm. on this. it might, might have been so ski because i'm a lot more familiar with five Vo after viewing right. his music recently um but also chicago freestyle Givian. i mean i really thought Sampa for a second yes which is yes uh, i think the vocal similarity is like striking um i'd like to hear more from him and see if he's got the chops similar to sampa i mean sampa's like rising up our, our rankings every day another drake collaborator really sampa yeah um you know drake he is what he is and we'll we'll wait for judgment on his quality till the summer when he releases the proper album hopefully it doesn't get pushed back but Dave, may the fourth be with you. Uh, and <laughs> and today, also with you. As of recording, lift up your sabers. Uh, it is the May the 4th celebration. We got some, some Star Wars news, some exciting stuff. And we also got the finale of Star Wars Rebels. Um, mm, which, almost. Clone uh, Wars. Clone Wars. Uh, <laughs> the other one. So Dave's going to be talking about that. But let's start with the, the stuff that I'm also able to talk with you about, which is that Taika Waititi has been tapped to direct a Star Wars film. Uh, he's also going to be co-writing it. Um, I mean, it, as far as like news goes, I don't, I don't really recall how much news ever gets dropped on May the 4th regarding Star Wars. I think sometimes it does, sometimes not. How are you feeling about Taika getting tapped for a Star Wars original? Yeah, I think it, it, it had like officially dropped in the trades that Lucasfilm had, were, were recording Taika earlier in the year, attempting to nail this down after his work with directing the Mandalorian finale and being in the Mandalorian. And of course, being the Disney orbit already from Thor. Um, yeah, I mean, that's cool, right? Tyke is definitely someone with a unique voice, a unique perspective. And I think that goes without saying. And he's also surprisingly quite mainstream now, which I think mm-hmm. actually probably makes the <laughs> Disney executives a little more happy with it too. So you know, with all the caveats that we have now with Disney and Lucasfilm, assuming they give Taika the rope he needs, this sounds right. tantalizing. <laughs> That's what a lot of directors that have been attached before 
Um, I think it does continue the general thought and messaging we've been getting that Star Wars is moving away from the traditional trilogy um, format after Benioff and Weiss left. You know, there's Kevin Foggy may or may not have been developing something. We know uh, J.D. Dillard might have been working on something recently. Uh, Ryan Johnson's stuff hasn't, at least hasn't been canceled at this time. And now you have Taika as well. They seem to be just doing a lot of different things, taking pitches. Of course, alongside this news, they confirmed the Leslie Headland is from Russian Doll is developing a show as well that goes on top of your Cash and Nandor show and your Obi Wan show. So I think Star Wars is kind of branching out. That's what we're getting. And Taika is a in demand appealing director to do that if they do let him follow through. So I, I like it. Uh, I obviously like it too, but I also am wondering, you know, with Taika just doing a lot of stuff coming up. I mean, uh, we talked about um, how he's set to direct a movie that's supposed to be coming out either late this year or early next year. Um, Now he's doing a star Wars thing. Uh, He's also directing Thor, Love and Thunder. Um, When are we going to hit the, the too much Taika thing? Like when are we going to get over that curve? Cause it's going to come at some point unless he's hits on all this. And that's going to be an incredible batting average of all of this is hit 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 so i'm a little bit weary about the uh about when that that's going to come but overall i mean if you can get him right now and bring a different type of movie into the star wars universe i mean rogue one seems to have been the biggest winner from the the trilogies the most recent trilogy um falling a bit flat for people because you look at something like rogue one and it was just such a breath of fresh air within this uh, universe, this cinematic universe that has been forced to remain so samey. So if mm-hmm. you're bringing Taika and you're getting a fresh voice, I mean, that's, that's something I think they have to do almost more than Marvel has to at this point. Um, so that, that that's just really exciting. And, and I like that they're trying to go off in some different directions and bring in some, some new perspectives to things. So you need to freshen it up for sure. And did Clone Wars freshen up your perspective of Star Wars? How are you feeling about this most recent season? Uh, yeah, so Clone Wars coming back and then being uh, wrapped up in earnest uh, is a lot different than a lot of the other Star Wars convos we've had of late because it's just true fan service. If anything, it's uh, dedication, uh, gratitude being shown to Dave Filoni for uh, with, you know, being able to finish his creation. So uh, it, it, it's quite different, but uh, on, honestly for the most part, it's been really a positive discourse about the seventh season because I think everyone's just happy to be back and see this kind of send off. Um, and I think ultimately the, the finale, which just aired today on the fourth uh, did land really well. And I think the star Wars faithful are certainly really uh, excited for Dave Filoni's future. You know, he evolved a bit with the Mandalorian, but what what's next? Because He's clearly one of their like loyal soldiers, one of their best creatives. So what's coming next? And it was just kind of cool to see them, uh, CC Dave and, and crew land, land the ship with um, the end. And this scene, this season, you know, in a sense, it, it's kind of bittersweet because it was just three arcs, three, four episode arcs. And two of the arcs um, don't feel nearly as uh, narratively important as the final arc. And I think that that does present some disappointment to people overall. You know, that first start, The Bad Batch, that was out in like a story reel form. We kind of knew that story already, um, you know, because they, Filoni and crew had kind of put out some information on planned storylines after the show was canceled, planned storylines they had for later in the line they didn't get to make. So seeing that, that story finished and then watching those episodes, that was cool and all. But in terms of like final season, uh, didn't quite warrant the, uh, I guess the, the, this, the resources at this time, but I'm not going to complain. And the second arc was kind of like a middle arc, kind of getting reintroducing Ahsoka and the Mandalorians and getting us to the final uh, third arc, the Siege of Mandalore. And again, a uh, bit of a misallocation of resources in my opinion, but that third arc, uh, the animation in particular definitely stood out. You can tell that Lucasfilm and Disney anim- uh, Lucasfilm animation, they really like focused on investing in this final stuff and, uh, it was kind of presenting the most tantalizing stuff that I found about 
the prospect of this new season once we saw that trailer because uh, the events of that final arc are taking place concurrently with Revenge of the Sith. And um, that, that, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And seeing Ahsoka and Rex uh, experience that worked really well, which I, I, wasn't, I wasn't positive on going in because we know what happens to Darth Maul and Rex and Ahsoka because they're all in Star Wars Rebels, which takes place after this. And of course, we know what happens to Anakin and Obi-Wan. So they needed to present this kind of like detente in, I think, an important way to make it feel worthwhile because there was no like, like true stakes. And I think Darth Maul was a big winner for this too. And even though he didn't die, just the way him and Ahsoka kind of became connected, um, Darth Maul somehow became one of the most fleshed out villains in the Star Wars universe, which was not something literally anyone thought when we met him in the Phantom Menace. So that's really cool, I guess. Um, and Ahsoka, I, people are just really hoping we get to see more of Ahsoka in the post-Rebels world because she was really a well-rounded character at this point and getting the send-off, the traditional send-off with Clone Wars, even though she comes back in Rebels, uh, worked really well. So Clone Wars Season 7, yeah, it's not, a, it's not where I'd tell you to start if you're just getting into Clone Wars or anything, but uh, they nailed the ending. Uh, Ahsoka seems like a character who is just rising further and further into the consciousness, especially with the, mm-hmm. you know, talk about Rosario Dawson playing her. Um, but yeah, to hear that they made Darth all such a well-rounded character, because if you don't follow these you know the the animated series the, yeah. the information we have about Darth Maul is he doesn't talk and then gets cut in half by Obi-Wan and then uh you, he pops up again in Solo for like right. one second which confused like, a lot of the normies and that's basically it <laughs> right so uh it's it's nice to know that you can go in and get some more Darth Maul content because you know we're all itching for that um so it sounds like even though it's it's uh even though it wasn't necessarily like the best season uh of of animated television still worthwhile still a fun addition and you know disney plus has been hurting for some original content during this time so having this fill the void and, and have something to follow along is great since disney plus came out i've turned it on to watch specifically to watch the mandalorian clone war season seven i rewatched force awakens in the last jedi before rise of skywalker and that's it i have not turned it on <laughs> for any other purpose <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I turned it on the other day. I was looking for, I forgot. Oh, I, w- I went to go watch the Simpsons episode I was thinking about. And I was like, you know, I haven't turned this on in like three months. It's not great. Um, but we'll have plenty of new content coming up. And they've got everybody hooked in when The Mandalorian 2 drops, whenever that is. So uh, we'll be talking more about Star Wars and Disney. But now we should move on and talk about Betty. A uh, show that wasn't necessarily on my radar. I know that you were waiting for it because you had also seen the movie Skate Kitchen, which just seemed like is either uh, an adaptation of or uh, maybe a longer look at that sort of story. And Betty on HBO for an ep- for a show I was kind of going in with just knowing it was about skating and women uh, or, or young females. It was That's a really pitch, fantastic yeah. episode. Uh, yeah, it was a really fantastic first episode, and it really sucks you into all these characters. I'm, I'm intrigued to to learn more about them and, and kind of see where it goes. But I think what I was left with more than anything was it just felt like a really fun hang, you know? Like, it it doesn't leave you where you're like, oh, like, that character is my favorite, that one's the best. But I was just like, it was just like hanging out in New York City for a day with nothing really to do, but, like, a slight, like, you know, propelling you forward and... I don't know, it's pretty cool. How did you feel about episode one of Betty on HBO? Yeah, so Skate Kitchen, which was a really small indie release from Crystal Masset. Mes- uh, that made my top 10 in 2018. I was, that was a really great movie. 2018 was kind of a sneaky year for skating between mid-90s, Skate Kitchen, and of course, Mining the Gap. Um, and in mid nineties got a lot of attention for casting the Kel Smith, a uh, skater and odd future affiliate in his first role, uh, you know, in the movie and skate kitchen is literally just a uh, casting this group, this crew of female skaters in New York city. And crystal just kind of stumbled across this and made it short originally. And then, you know, through some creative, I think creative input from P 
people at Sundance. She expanded this into the movie and, uh, you know, just basically the, all these girls, none of which we really acted before, just kind of playing fictional versions of, versions of themselves. And that movie also had a really great Jane Smith uh, performance of all people. So I'd recommend Skate Kitchen. It's on Hulu right now. Um, and Betty, I knew they were developing this, but I just told, I just totally missed this was coming. And it's funny. It's a, it's a Friday show on HBO and only 30 minutes, six episodes. So it's going to be a quick watch, but I agree with you. It's just really the vibe, man. And like yeah. for me, like having watched Skate Kitchen, I kind of knows who these characters are a little bit, but this kind of, I think just a spinoff. I don't think there's really gonna be any connection to the first movie. You don't need to watch it, but I would recommend the movie because in the movie, um, Rachel Vinberg's character, Camille, she's the one who loses her phone in episode one of mm. Betty. She really stood out. She's the central character in the film. And that was a really impressive performance for someone who's not really an actor. And it seems that the show's going to be a bit more just truly about the ensemble. But it's going to touch on some stuff that I think is kind of under, under, uh, under discussed. You know, it's like the gender, the gender dynamics in the skate culture. Yeah. Uh, it's probably not the most mainstream uh, thing when it comes to gender relations in terms of what people talk about. So I think it's going to be cool to see that portrayed a little bit. Um, also, it clearly has a New York sensibility being about New York City and people that are from New York and being shot there. So that's cool. Um, and like that visual style, I think actually kind of stands out. Like just watching them like shoot people skating in the middle of the street and the Lower East Side. It's like, don't know how exactly you pulled that off, but it looks sick. <laughs> yeah. Looked awesome. Yeah. And it, so and it looked I'm, I'm all like about a, it. Yeah. And it looked like a genuine, like, uh, like rush hour almost. So they must've just had someone on a skateboard following along. Right. Or something. It's definitely really cool. And yeah, I think just um, kind of going into this world of skate, which has, like you said, turned out to be a very fascinating world for movie and television recently. And I think also because uh, it seems like a lot of the people that gravitate towards those hobbies seem to have interesting backstories, or at least the ones that have been followed seem to have interesting backstories behind them. Um, and I'm hoping we, we flesh that out a little bit more, but man, when they were hanging out, just like in that, that car smoking weed. And I, I forgot what the, what the guy's name was that, that, you know, yeah, his backpack too. got stolen, but man, he, I was dying laughing when he's like, I'm known for not losing things. And here I am. I lost something. And like, he was just like freaking out. And then he was like, I got to smoke weed right now. I'm going to smoke it. Like just the way he's going about it made me really laugh. Yeah. And then the, the, interactions between uh nina moran and a johnny russell who first mm -hmm. of all a johnny russell with like the bleached eyebrows just like totally stands out and is like very mm -hmm. eye-catching um but their interaction was just like so charged it was like i can't believe these are first-time actors for the, the, the most part i know cabrina adams has had a, like a role here or there but mm -hmm. nothing super in-depth so um or super well known i should say so really really interesting to see this and I'm, I'm stoked to watch the rest of it i hope that that these sort of stories keep getting told and good on hbo for for highlighting it any other thoughts on this before we wrap up yeah no uh, i agree with that all that um i'd really appreciate that asap rocky fucking problems drop while they're getting high yeah and they actually let it ride for like a verse and Dude. a half get into the drake part and i was like wow this yeah hell yeah this is still hitting let's go um yeah <laughs> and also the, the i, I dude... listened to that song like five times this weekend it's so good uh, hell yeah <laughs> And then uh, the dude too, when he when he was like, "Oh no, I'm not gonna get my phone." They're like, "Oh, what's uh, the to find my iPhone? We'll be fine." And he's like, "Can't uh, can't have the government listen to me?" As he holds up his flip phone. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that, that definitely fits the stereotype. Yep. Oh my god, so good. Um, yeah, look, looking forward to the next episode. We'll be talking about it when it wraps up. But check it out and give us your thoughts below. <sighs> Dave, I can't believe. <laughs> So we, we've known the Westworld finale is coming. I can't believe we get to talk about Drake and Westworld in the same episode. Two of my biggest, uh, probably like left, left turns in terms of critical reception, or I guess a uh, popular perception because Drake, very popular artist that I'm not a super fan of like most people uh, in Westworld. Very well documented if you know anything about, about our reviews that we are not big fans of Westworld. But Westworld season three, we were maybe a little bit optimistic, you know, bringing Aaron Paul into the mix, Kid Cudi. I mean, anytime you can get Marshawn Lynch in the fold, potential for some greatness. This all there. sounds good. Tell me yeah. more. And, and you Vincent know what? Cassell, of course. Season two ended with a bang, uh, which it often does for Westworld. And we were like, you know what? They're moving outside the park. Maybe there's some 
maybe there'll be some interesting developments here that might bring us back in. Are you feeling any different about Westworld after season three than you did when season two ended? Hell no. (laughs) This shit is so convoluted and fake deep and completely absent of stakes. I guess that makes me the outlier for pointing that out. I don't know. I don't get how people find this satisfying at all. <laughs> it's it's infuriating. Dave, no, are you, it's, are you it Dolores? Because oh I, I have no idea who the hell Dolores is. It's a point. good point. That's a good point. Yes, I am. And I would <laughs> applaud Joe Nolan and Lisa Joy if they had the balls to keep Dolores, Dolores Prime, whatever, dead, dead, you know? But obviously Evan Rachel Wood is one of the faces of this show. We know that ain't happening. She'll be back in season four. That's the problem with this show. Anything can be undone. And like, there's two big red herrings in this season, right? There's the one where there's the uh, anti-riot uh, big robot guy that's like 15 feet tall, right? You know he's going to come back. They introduce him in like the second episode. He comes back to save Tessa. And I'm like, oh yeah, saw that coming. Cool. Looks nice. Great effects. Cool. L- pretty flat though. And then of course, when, uh, when Tessa's like, uh yeah, I, I, well I'm I'm downloading the uh the IP. It's so valuable. We got to save these hosts, and then they burn all the hosts in the basement. But oh, look at the stinger scene! They're making the hosts again. Like who didn't see that coming? Like uh, <laughs> like the two red, especially that one. I just I was like so annoyed. I was like yes, of course you're bringing all the hosts back. No fucking shit. Like, oh yeah, Hector. This tough scene where Maeve is like, oh Hector, my love, he's dead. Just kidding. He'll come back later. It don't matter. It's fine. And that's the problem. You can't care about anything because it doesn't, nothing matters. Yeah. I, I actually found myself saying out loud when Maeve and, and Dolores were fighting, you know, near, near the end, I was like, you, you, neither one of you can really die. Like you don't actually die in the show. So why are you spending your time doing this? I guess because one of you needs to succumb but in the end, like, just because they succumb doesn't mean that anything necessarily changes. Now, it's the part I was probably most sad about this season because I, I did feel like there were some things that were, were pretty well done. It's, it's a well-shot show. I think some of the action mm-hmm. scenes are pretty riveting and fun to watch. And if you just want to watch this show for the action, and, and a couple of these episodes were just pure action from start to finish, then yeah, you can enjoy the show for that. But to think it's a bigger, a bigger concept show that actually hits, uh, I don't, I don't. We learn about her human backstory is a lot more fascinating than Tessa Thompson's character as a fucking host. Like mm-hmm. I want to rewind and have them build out that character in the first yeah. two seasons and understand why she is the way she is, what things led to that, and her relationship with Ed Harris before she's a goddamn robot. Because at this You're- point, then it doesn't matter. Right. Um, yeah. And so now, now we're left with what a robot uh, host Charlotte, who is right. is or is not really Dolores, and then we have host Ed Harris, host Men in Black, Men in Black, who we kind of knew existed at the end of season two, but like so now what? Now now James Delos, now Men in Black is dead. So now we're just left with a one-off, truly villainous Men in Black. I guess that's the implication of what he'll be moving forward whatever i guess apparently ed harris was much more fan of playing that character than playing the you know the businessman real life delos so mm-hmm. i good for ed i guess get your checks but yeah <laughs> like dude sh- i really like charlotte's presence you know like yeah. tessa thompson just kind of shows up in season two like what she opens the door naked right she's just being a boss mm-hmm. and like just being this badass like ex- ex- executive at delos and then she dies right and it's like I like Tess Thompson as an actor, but nothing about her arc, uh, the arc this season worked with like the family and Michael Ely as the, as the baby dad. And like it, none, none of that worked. Um, no. And then even, even Delos kind of spins his wheel where uh, Sirac is making like gaslighting everyone to making everyone think uh, Delos is insane. Then he's not. And he's trying to take back his company by being a good guy. And then he dies. Then like n- n- that didn't matter either. Right. And, like, if you think about it, Bernard also, you know, another big president, Jeffrey Wright, uh, Bernard doesn't do a whole lot in this season either, right? Where it's kind of keeping people on the board and spinning the wheels, keeping the treadmill going. And, like, 
I kind of laughed when uh, it starts off in the season and we find out uh, Luke Hemsworth's character, Stubbs, is a host. And that, that, that's the thing with Westworld. You can kind of just change your mind on things. There was no implication through two seasons that Stubbs was a host at all. And we have no way of knowing if Joe Nolan and Lisa Joy ever thought that once, but they can change their mind. That's just the way the show mm-hmm. works. And that was cool. I guess I actually kind of liked uh, like their dynamic and seeing them do stuff. Not that anything they did really was interesting or mattered, but I enjoyed seeing them, I guess. I was thinking about this show in relation to Succession, right? Because I, I see the, these as like the two main like staples of HBO at this point. In terms of gone, Veep is gone. So you don't even have those like comedy staples. These are the two horses that HBO is riding on. Succession is so aware of what it is, what it does well. And it totally builds on that every single episode. And yeah, it's going to be some petty shit and it's going to be some family drama and it's going to be some ritzy, rich person undercutting petty quarrels. But we're, 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 we're here for that, you know, and, and you're going to get some twists along the way, but it's very much what it is. Westworld tries to be so much in, in all at the same time, you know, it tries to be mm-hmm. this commentary on, humanity it tries to be this commentary on fate uh fate and determinism versus free choice and free will and i just feel like all of it is like half-baked in a lot of ways like the caleb character which is supposed to be this uh you know played by aaron paul supposed to be this like you are really human because you've made choices and that's what makes you human and that kind of being what it comes down to and like choosing beauty over choosing ugliness and having to do ugly things to achieve beauty it just all kind of left me with this huge eye roll like i felt like i had to pick my eyes up off the floor like five times in the final episode and like in the final two episodes as they were explaining this i also feel like they go from not telling you anything and you're kind of like what the hell is happening for like six of the eight episodes and then the last two episodes are just these total like exposition dumps trying to explain all the concepts and tie it together and it just felt so messy and like overdone to me it was it was just a lot man um i, I really don't know how you fix the show moving forward and maybe it doesn't need to be fixed maybe they're just gonna like have people like us tuning in to hate watch it or just to report back because it seems like a lot of people do enjoy the show and a lot of people mm-hmm. do find it interesting and intriguing and even before we started recording today you said it was kind of an easy watch only because you can kind of turn your brain off and just enjoy parts of it and not have to worry about you know uh trying to think any deeper on it if you don't want right. to i will say i enjoyed uh vincent, Cons- vincent cassell as Sirac as the villain this season yeah. Yeah. cassell in general is just kind of a welcome presence whenever he's on screen but I feel like his effectiveness as the villain started to wane a little bit because he he's presented as this omnipresent, infallible, secret mastermind of civilization, yet Dolores and um, who is with her? Del- Dolores gets to infiltrate that that site with her magic sniper rifle, right? Like, right. like. It seemed like he got outsmarted kind of easily. But yeah, I mean, overall, just in terms of making the show better, I the show would have to have a different interest in its storytelling. It just, it, it has a way of keeping things from the audience for the sake of keeping them, not because they're interesting, not because they're even that deep or that complicated, but just because that's the way it wants to present its arcs. And I just don't find it effective at all. And, you know, I have quibbles about stuff. Like, I wish Dolores was a bit more emotive of a character. I guess, in, in a sense, this is my favorite Dolores season. And I really like Evan Rachel. Well, I think it was cool seeing her kind of, like, infiltrate the 1% society in the normal Westworld world. You know, that was cool. Um, but, yeah, narratively, man, it's just, it's just, it's just hard to get behind. Uh, but it, yeah. it like you know like the obvious influences of like Metropolis and Blade Runner in the world yeah that looks cool that looks really cool that's the problem though like, there's nothing under the surface with this and it talks about all its themes as if it warrants something being under the surface if it was presented as a simpler thing I wouldn't be as critical but it's actually setting out as you said to kind of be all these different things at once and nothing's really landing so it's tough but 
season four is coming. Uh, obviously, they can't start production now, so I think that show at least is 2022. So it's going to be a while. But I'm curious to see how much discussion this season really warrants before people move on anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll probably be talking about it, but, man, I don't know. It's definitely not a show I look forward to. I actually ended up, like, kind of just binging it this past week because it never feels essential to me to watch. And for a show that is so such big, big budget and that HBO has really, like I said, made this one of its signature shows at the moment, just – kind of worrisome especially when we just talked about a show that they just kind of threw out there and it feels like such a more fun hang and a show I, I want to go back and watch more uh it, it, it being a 27 minute show about skateboarders in New York like right. it doesn't always need to be so complex but it might just be us Dave but anyways I think we're gonna wrap up there what do we got for next week we'll be talking about normal people on Hulu very excited to talk about that uh also, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood Hell yeah. out now on Netflix. And then a bunch of movies. Oh, um, and then I Know This Much is True on HBO. Mark Ruffalo, Dual Roles. That was actually shot a lot in my hometown. That's pretty cool. Ooh. See how that goes. And then a bunch of music. Kalani, Haley Williams, Little Sims, some other people as well. Nav. We don't care about Nav, but he's dropping. Uh, so, yeah. Really excited about those shows. Let's talk about it. SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod, and follow us uh, on Twitter at NostalgiaPod. We appreciate you. Stay safe. Wear your masks. Peace out. Yeah.